1: It's Monday, October 7th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indra Viscontis, and it's my birthday. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This is the third in our three-part series on very small things, and today we're getting to pretty much the smallest things that we know exist, quantum mechanics. It's my great pleasure to have Sean Carroll, theoretical physicist from Caltech, and one of the world's most celebrated science writers, back on the show. His latest book, Something Deeply Hidden, uncovers a secret that physicists have been keeping from all of us. The fact that even they don't really understand quantum mechanics. I mean, hey, I thought it was just me. This book also resonated with me because I recently read a Ted Chiang short story from his collection Exhalation about a possible future in which we can actually contact people in the many other worlds that might exist outside of our own. If every time there's a quantum event, we make a decision and all of a sudden that changes the course of our lives, what would happen if we could speak to the person who we would have been had we not made that decision. That's what Ted Chiang writes about. And it's a really interesting concept. And it raises some really fascinating questions. And who better to answer those questions than Sean Carroll? Sean Carroll, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. I was so delighted to receive your book. Uh, And of course, it blew my mind again, but in a very different way uh, from the big picture, which is the previous book we covered here. Um, And so I want to start with the surprise I had in reading the first few chapters where you kind of admonish the entire physics society or industry, whatever you want to call it, uh, discipline uh, for not really spending time answering the thing that most of us non-physicists really want to know, which is what the hell is quantum mechanics anyway?
0: Yeah, I think that this is uh, that was an intentional strategy. I'm glad you picked up on that. Part of it is because I do want to really shove it in the face of my fellow physicists. It's something that they all know but can sort of get away with pretending it's not a big deal. I mean, maybe they disagree with me, that's fine. But at least talking about it would be nice. And I think that people on the street don't know that there's a lot of us who think that not only do we not understand quantum mechanics, but we haven't really tried, which is weird and unnecessary.
1: Yeah, so I think for the layperson, it always, at least for me, like, so, you know, I I did really well in high school physics, because it was just Newtonian. (laughs) And then you get to college, and I was go. like, wow, yes. I'm, not, I'm not good at this at all. I don't understand any of it, right? So for the layperson, what, can you give us a kind of overview of, without getting into too many details of many words, because I want to spend a lot of time talking about that. What should people know about quantum mechanics? Like, What are the kind of basics that anyone who wants to kind of just be intelligent about physics today um, should know? And then we can talk about what we don't know.
0: Yeah, I I actually like to approach it through the atom. You know, you've all seen these cartoons of an atom, right, with the nucleus at the center and electrons whirling around in orbits, kind of like a little mini solar system. That's what we're taught as youngsters, that the atom is like a little solar system. And yeah, so and I'll be embarrassed
1: that, to admit, sorry, the Inquiring Minds logo is, is just like that. It's, there you it's go. Terrible.
0: I'm not against it. It's just totally <laughs> wrong as a description of reality in terms of what's going on inside the atom. Uh, this is the Rutherford atom, okay, named after Ernest Rutherford. And it's obviously wrong for the following reason. The electron in that orbit is moving up and down really quickly. It's going in circles really, really rapidly. And according to all the rules that we understood circa the beginning of the 20th century, that electron should therefore be radiating. It should be giving off light. When you take a charged particle that has an electric field stretching out around it and you move it, the electric field adjusts. So if you move it up and down, there's a wave that gets sent off in all directions. And and literally all the light around you right now is essentially being given off by electrons that are shaking. So if that electron in the atom gives off light, it should lose energy, spiral into the middle of the atom, And all of matter should be dramatically unstable, okay? All atoms should just collapse. That's clearly not what happens. So something dramatic is called for. And for various reasons, what they hit on was the idea that we should not think of an electron as a particle, We should think of it as a wave. It's sort of spread out, and there's different ways it can vibrate. And if we had a different conversation about physics and music right now, we would talk about, you know, the fundamental frequency of a violin string and then the overtones and so forth. Likewise for the electron in the atom, there's different energies that it could possibly have. That's a great theory. But then the problem is when you see electrons going through your particle detector, through your cloud chamber or bubble chamber or whatever, they don't look like waves. They look like particles. They leave tracks. So there was this weird thing that was seemed to be the case that electrons act like waves when you don't look at them, and then when you do look at them, they look like particles. And rather than being outraged at this clearly nonsensical view of the world where things are different, whether you're looking at them or not, in the 1920s and 30s, physicists said, yep, that's it. That's how things are. Looking at things is a fundamental aspect of nature. And when you don't look at an electron, it has what we call a wave function, and it's all spread out. When you do look at it, the wave function collapses, and there's a probability for getting different answers. That's quantum mechanics as we teach it to our students right now.
1: So isn't that a little bit, though, like saying, you know, if, you, if you're watching a film as, you know, if you, it kind of unfolds, but it's made up of these single frames. I mean, that's a, kind of how I always understood it, that if you observe it, you're just observing one frame. Uh, but of course, that is not the nature of the film, of the thing.
0: Yeah, but the point is, unlike quantum mechanics and classical mechanics, which preceded quantum mechanics, you can just observe things. You can just measure whatever you want. You can measure the electric field, you can measure the particles, the position of the earth around the sun. There was no special role being played by the act of measurement. Whereas in quantum mechanics, as we teach it to our students and as we put it together under what's called the Copenhagen interpretation in the late 1920s, uh, there's different rules for what quantum systems do when you are and are not looking at them. And this raises two ginormous questions. One is, what do you mean l- look at them? Like, what counts as looking? Like, how how are you defining what it means to make an observation or a measurement? And then number two What is real? Like, when you're not looking at it in that wave function, is that the reality of it? Or are you revealing the reality when you actually see it? And neither one of these is something that physicists in modern physics have a consensus answer to. We disagree about that. That's the weird thing.
1: So, yeah, so you talk about how in many textbooks, quantum mechanics is kind of a recipe rather than a a sort of a theory or an explanation. Um, is it these rules that you're referring to and that the, the recipe then can, you know, change according to kind of which set of rules you're most, you know, familiar with or, or most attached to?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, this is, we have to emphasize both that on the one hand, we don't understand quantum mechanics at a deep level. And, and by understanding, by the way, I should say parenthetically, I don't mean like, why is it like that? Like what is the fundamental essence of the thing? I just mean what is happening? Like the literal description of the world when you undergo a quantum measurement. That's what we want to know. That's what we mean by understanding. So we don't. But on the other hand, we can use quantum mechanics extremely efficiently. We can make predictions. These predictions are verified to wildly high degrees of experimental accuracy. So your cell phone and lasers and the sun shining are things that couldn't be understood if 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 we didn't have a way of using quantum mechanics, that's the recipe that I talk about in the book.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like if you're looking at an artificial intelligence and you're trying to figure out whether it's conscious or to bring in consciousness, when we're talking about quantum mechanics, I know that's like, you know, you don't explain something you don't understand with something else you don't understand. But, you know, the the sense that you could, you know, the the computer could do all of these things and we could make it do all of these things that, you know, resemble human thinking. um, And we still would never know whether or not it's conscious Um, because that's like an emergent property potentially. And we don't know whether it emerges. Um, That
0: that is true. Yes. Sorry, I'm not I'm not seeing the connection to quantum (laughs) quantum mechanics here. Yeah.
1: So I, I guess the question my question would be like, so we can use it. Does that mean that we just might fundamentally never understand it, or is there some way that you think that you know we can go about to try to understand this better? Because sometimes when it comes to consciousness, like uh, yeah, I feel like I need we need to shrug our shoulders. But you know, I, as a neuroscientist, I, I I hope that's not the case. But you know, it some feels intractable.
0: Sure. No, I think that there's two reasons why uh, the situation is a little bit different. One is that we we have a recipe for quantum mechanics that works well in the circumstances which are most obviously relevant for quantum phenomena but there's plenty of circumstances in which it doesn't work well like when you're studying the whole universe at once or even when you just want to know things like, when does the wave function undergo this dramatic collapse from being all spread out to being localized somewhere? So it's not just that the recipe isn't right, it's that it's incomplete. It doesn't even give us answers to some questions. So certainly nature is doing something when we take a quantum measurement, therefore there should be some explanation for it. And the second thing is, I see no obstacle whatsoever to human minds completely understanding quantum mechanics. This Copenhagen interpretation that we've been stuck with since the 20s, it's there, but there are fairly well-developed alternatives where all these questions do have definite answers, and Many Worlds is just one of them. But there are other examples. So we could be spending our times thinking about these different alternative, well-defined theories of quantum mechanics, or we could just ignore it. I don't think there's any reason why we should be just ignoring it.
1: So let's let's talk about many worlds. So I I love the fact that you you sort of end the book with an epilogue um, about how like Einstein died in 1955, which is right around the time that Everett was, you know, suggesting this many worlds view, um, and that that would have made Einstein very uncomfortable even though, you know, it kind of explains some of the things that he was struggling with. So, so can, can we start there in a sense of like, what, what, um, what do you think that it was that, that sort of led t- uh, to the formulation of Many Worlds and, and sort of why would that have made Einstein uncomfortable?
0: Yeah, I think there's two big ideas that Everett brought to bear. One is he just didn't accept the Copenhagen idea that we should treat observers as classical Okay, so right there in the uh, way that the Copenhagen interpretation was traditionally expressed to people, there are quantum systems that you're going to measure, and there's a classical person who is measuring them. And Everett's like, what do you mean? Like, People are made of atoms, and atoms obey the rules of quantum mechanics. Of course we should treat the observer as quantum also. The other thing that he appreciated was this phenomenon of entanglement. So it was, in fact, Einstein who really developed this idea, Einstein and Schrodinger and others, and most famously in what's called the EPR paper, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen in 1935. And they showed that, you know, quantum mechanics makes predictions for what you're going to observe about different systems. But those predictions for different parts of the universe don't have to be independent of each other. So in other words, I could have two particles that are spinning, for example, and they're both spinning either clockwise or counterclockwise. Their quantum states will generally be a combination, a superposition, we say, of both clockwise and counterclockwise. And it can be the case that you have no idea when you measure the spin of one particle whether it will be clockwise or counterclockwise. And the same thing is true for the other particle, but you know that both of them are spinning in opposite directions, in fact, this is trivially easy to set up in the lab. So there's this entanglement between the two particles that says that neither one of them has a definite state of spin until you measurement, measure it, but we know they're going in the opposite direction. So even if one of them is light years away, when we measure one, we know exactly what the answer to the other one will be. So Everett put these two things together. When you make a measurement of a quantum system, you are a quantum system also And you can become entangled with the thing that you're looking at. So he said, look, if you look at what it means to do a quantum measurement, forget about all the weird rules in the Copenhagen interpretation. Just treat yourself as a quantum system obeying the equations of quantum mechanics. And it is inevitable that what really happens when you measure something is that you become entangled with it. And if the thing you're measuring is a particle that could be spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, the wave function of the universe which includes you and the particle and everything else, inevitably evolves to a superposition of the particle was spinning clockwise and you saw it spinning clockwise, plus the particle spinning counterclockwise and you saw it spinning counterclockwise. Now, everyone agrees with that. That is the prediction of the Schrodinger equation, the fundamental equation of quantum mechanics. In Copenhagen, you say, and then one of these two parts of the superposition magically disappears. That's the collapse of the wave function. And whatever it said is, why? Just, you don't need to say that. You can just say, look, there's a part of the wave function where it was spinning clockwise, and that's what you saw, and another part where it's spinning counterclockwise, and that's what you saw, and they're both real, but they're both separate. They don't interact with each other. They don't have any interference, any way of talking anymore. It's as if they are separate worlds. So Everett's basically saying, if you don't put in all these extra rules to quantum mechanics, you still get a theory that explains the data perfectly well, with much less baggage, but the price you pay is that all the different alternative measurement outcomes actually become true in separate worlds.
1: So that would mean, of course, that every time you observe a quantum event or quantum particle, you create another world.
0: That is correct. And in fact... It's happened a lot more often than that because plenty of times quantum systems are becoming entangled with the environment. It has nothing to do with you. This is the wonderful thing about many worlds, is that there's no special place for measurements or observations or looking at things or human consciousness or perception or any of that stuff. It's all just different quantum systems bumping into each other. And whenever a small quantum system that's in a superposition bumps into the outside world and its superposition gets Amplified to the macroscopic world, the wave function of the universe branches.
1: So this is the Something Deeply Hidden that your book's title um, refers to, right?
0: Yeah, the quote Something Deeply Hidden is from Einstein as a child. He remembered when he was a kid, he was given a magnetic compass And he was fascinated by this, like he would turn it around and it would always point north. And, you know, in his little child's mind, he's thinking, how does it know to always point north all the time? There must be something deeply hidden that explains why this is happening. And that attitude, I mean, maybe he. this was a story he told much later in life, so he could have massaged his memory to make it more favorable to his later predilections, but he always had this idea that whenever we do science, we should always be asking what's really going on beneath the surface. And that's why quantum mechanics really bugged him, not because it was non-local or not because it was random, but because it was incomplete. It wasn't done yet. It seemed like there were questions that it just was refusing to answer. So the idea that there is something deeply hidden that explains all of that is the motivating idea for my book. My personal favorite answer is many worlds, but there's other answers that I'd be just as happy with if they turned out to be right.
1: Mel Science is a chemistry subscription service that sends you monthly experiments to do with your child or someone else's child or even just by yourself. It's a great way to engage people in science, especially if they're kids, early, educate them in a joyful manner, and get them to conduct real scientific experiments with their own hands. A lot of people find chemistry, well, let's just say a little scary. In fact, often you hear people say that they don't want to put chemicals in their bodies, which of course doesn't make any sense since your body is made up of chemicals. But this is a way of Getting rid of any kinds of fear super early on, because essentially what you get are the tools to do your own chemistry experiments and to realize that, hey, chemistry is not scary. Chemicals are not bad. They're cool. In the first box, you get a free starter kit with all the necessary equipment, including a free virtual reality headset to use for their free VR lessons. One of the things I found most difficult when studying organic chemistry is imagining what all of these probability clouds would look like. We'll talk about probability class with Sean Carroll. But here you can incorporate a virtual reality environment in which you can actually experience for yourself the different aspects of chemistry that can be quite confusing. With MEL, you can do experiments like assembling a functional battery, growing crystals, and even launching a mini rocket. I'm sure that goes over really well with the kids. I really do think that doing chemistry at home is such a great way to understand the concepts, to learn that chemistry is not scary, but rather beautiful and amazing and mysterious and wonderful. But one of the things that's hard is, well, getting the chemicals that you need for your experiments delivered to your door. And Mel Science takes care of that. They've carefully curated a number of experiments that you can get so that you can maximize your fun and educational experience with your child. Ready to get started? It's easy. Get 25% off plus a free starter kit and a free virtual reality headset and free shipping when you text MINDS to 64000. So text MINDS to 64000 to get this special offer from Mel Science. You support our show and you support our sponsors. So text M-I-N-D-S to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. If you're in the Boston area, there's a super awesome podcasting conference going on this week. It starts October 9th and goes through the 12th, and it's at WBUR. It's called Sound Education, a celebration of educational audio. There's lots of engaging speakers, many of whom produce award-winning podcasts, and me. I'll be there talking about my two podcasts, both Inquiring Minds and Cadence. So check it out, soundeducation.fm. So I want to talk about, you know, why this is your favorite answer and sort of how does that, like, how do you live your life (laughs) thinking that this is how the world actually is? Like, it's crazy.
0: I'm remarkably unperturbed by that. Yeah. You know, I think, but it is a good question. Um, In fact, let let me turn it into what might be considered a reasonable objection to many worlds. Many worlds is the simplest fundamental version of quantum mechanics. It just says there are wave functions and they evolve according to the Schrodinger equation, the worlds come out, okay? We didn't put the worlds in there. They're, they naturally appear. But the formalism of the theory with these wave functions that obey this equation, it's very, very far away from our experience of the world, Right. We see a world with classical things. We see tables and chairs. We don't see wave functions. We see things, when we do see wave functions, we apparently see them collapse. That's not what many worlds says. So there's an enormous amount of philosophical work needing to be done to match what many worlds says onto the world of our experience. Other attempts to get rigorous theories of quantum mechanics, such as hidden variable theories, need less work. To explain the world we see because they have more stuff in them, so they sort of more naturally map on to the world we see around us. So, but I don't mind, like I, I think like that's the choice that I'm going to have to make. If you have theories that are complicated, but it's pretty clear how they fit the world versus a theory that is very lean and mean and simple and uh, austere and beautiful but it's a little bit harder to see how it fits the world. My attitude is, let's see how that might fit the world. This is a a promising route for future investigation.
1: Yeah, so I guess that would be my next question. So, uh, have you read uh, Ted Chiang's short stories co- um, in, in his compilation called *Exhalation*? I've not What's read that? it. It's on it? Okay. my
0: Kindle right now. But
1: oh, okay. Know. So okay. let me let me give away, uh, sure. you know, one of them just because I think this is really uh, right apropos to what we're talking about. The the last story is called "Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom," which is a great title. That's a great title, and it describes uh, a, a a world, a future world, um, in which we've evolved these or we've we've developed these things called. Prisms, what she calls prisms, and essentially what it allows you to do is, at the moment that you turn on the prism, you do this quantum measurement, and it basically creates a new version of you, um, and then you can communicate with that version of you at any time, uh, and you can see or you can you can ask that version about the decisions that they made and how it turned out for them. <laughs> Right. So it's it's a sense of observing one of the other many worlds. So with, you know, besides the psychological implications of that, which is fascinating to me, we can talk about it if we have time, I wanted to talk to you about like, is that a possible, like, how would we observe the other worlds? Is that a possible <laughs> way?
0: So, you know, we've all had the idea of that mechanism for a science fiction story. So I'm glad he did it. I'm sure the uh, story that he wrote would be much better than one that I've ever written. But as far as we know, it would be fiction. That's sort of the prediction of quantum mechanics, is that the worlds are truly separate. Otherwise... We would have noticed them by now. So it's not just that we think that they're separate because we haven't noticed them. That's the prediction of the equations. But it is compatible with the fact that we haven't noticed them by now. Um, It would be nice. Like, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book and I like to bring up when I give talks on this is that there is literally an app you can download for your iPhone called Universe Splitter. And with the Universe Splitter <laughs> app, you can, oh, no. you know, if you have a difficult question, you know, should I uh, turn right or turn left? You can plug it into the Universe Splitter, and it will give you back. So you're in the universe where you should go left, okay? Huh. And then whatever difficult decisions you have, you can be guaranteed that if you follow the phone's advice, there will be another world in which you did the other thing. But you can't ever talk to them. It would certainly be useful if you could, but the rules of the game, as far as we know, are that you can't.
1: Well, so but in this formulation, is it is this like happening at every possible conceivable, you know, section of time or is this like kind of random like maybe, you know, you get 5 in, you know, 1 millisecond and then not for another 30 milliseconds or, you know, like how do we even know that?
0: Well, they're happening very, very quickly, but in fact, you know, this is one of the this is one of the legitimate skeletons in the closet, pieces of dirty laundry of the Everett interpretation is we can't give you a hard and fast answer to how many worlds there are or how many are being created. Uh, It is definitely a very, very large number. There's no question about that. Uh, Much bigger than once every millisecond. But it could be infinite, right? We don't know whether the total possible number of worlds is even finite or infinite. If the total number of worlds is infinite, which is actually in some sense the easier and more natural choice, then what we're talking about is not the number of worlds, but the fraction of worlds with a certain property, right? Like if you take all the real numbers between zero and one, uh, there's an infinite number between zero and a half, but it's still sensible to say half of those real numbers are between zero and a half, half of the ones between zero and one. So, if there's an infinite number of worlds, you can still talk about the probability that you're going to find yourself in a world that looks one way versus the other. Now, if and in that case, the answer to you know how often worlds are being created is all literally all the time, literally every moment of time. If there are a finite number, things are actually trickier, because then you can say, well, when exactly does it happen? Again, it would be a huge, huge, huge number, but we need to do better work. Uh, This is one of the things that I think that we should have been studying for the last 80 years, and and haven't been, but uh, 70 years anyway. And uh, hopefully we will pretty soon.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, you know, in my my mind, I can't conceive of why it wouldn't be infinite, you know, given how old the universe is. So let me ask you this then. How do you think we should have been studying this? Like if if these worlds are totally separate and I guess we we can't even really observe them. Like what what do you think the where is the evidence?
0: Yeah, the the evidence is from the success of quantum mechanics. Um you know, if let's say that we want to be like Karl Popper, okay? We want to say we would like our theories to be falsifiable. Uh, Popper says—and I don't don't think this is exactly right and you need to be more subtle about it, but it's a good sort of rough rule of thumb—a theory is scientific if you can imagine an experimental result which would disprove it, right? That's the falsifiability criterion. So the Everett interpretation is not the statement that there are many worlds. The Everett interpretation is the statement that there is a wave function and it evolves according to the Schrodinger equation, and there's nothing else and there's no other methods of evolution. So all you have to do to falsify the Everett interpretation is show the wave function doing something other than obeying the Schrodinger equation, or show that there are some variables in addition to the variables of the wave function. Those are very easy things to do in principle, and in fact, there are ongoing experiments actually trying to do them. So by all of the conventional standards of what makes a theory scientific, the Everett interpretation is as scientific as it gets.
1: And so do you have a sense, like, you know, let's say we disprove the many worlds theory, I mean, I guess this is like me trying to get you to predict what we don't already know. We don't <laughs> know. <laughs> but I mean, is, there, is there a chance for those of us who are still mystified by quantum mechanics that we're going to get to a point where you realize like the physicists were wrong, it's actually much more simple, much closer to the reality as we observe it? Or are we so far beyond that point that what what, you know, could come up as the next explanation could be even spookier?
0: Well, I think that it won't be simpler. Let's put it that way. Uh, Everett is really the simplest possible thing you could imagine and still call it quantum mechanics. In fact, I mean, the problem, these philosophical problems in mapping the theory onto reality are all caused because it's almost too simple. It's not complicated enough to map onto the complications of the world, at least not in an obvious way. So there's work to be done there, and people like me are doing it. But it's certainly possible that some experiment, or for that matter, some brilliant theoretical insight, will convince people that there's a better way for some reason. might not be simpler, but it's better, a better way to do quantum mechanics. And in that case, yeah, people will change their minds and there'll be a whole new set of spookiness. The spookiness will not go away entirely. Uh, That's sort of just a feature of quantum mechanics because it should be spooky. I mean, it should be something that is unlike our everyday experience. The realm in which we are forced to take quantum mechanics seriously, the realm of subatomic particles and entanglement and things like that, is just by its very nature very far removed from our everyday experience so there's no version of future quantum mechanics where we go oh yeah it's just like classical mechanics that i grew up with we just didn't understand it
1: so given that you know as a field as you mentioned at the beginning of your book there isn't a a kind of reverence for people who are doing classical quantum mechanics work i'm i'm putting you know words in your mouth now so correct me if, if i'm misreading that but um so tell me about like so the, the 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 quantum mechanics or the quantum physicists that then have gone more towards the application route. Um, why do you think that has been so much more appealing to them? Is it you know is it is it just like well okay now we don't understand this and so let's just capitalize on the fact that we can use it to do cool stuff?
0: I think you know that's a really interesting question that I don't have a simple answer to. I think it was a bunch of things going on. Uh, that all reinforced themselves. At the simplest level, Niels Bohr and his colleagues uh, who passed through Copenhagen and put together the Copenhagen interpretation were very persuasive. You know, Um, they were collaborative and charismatic, and they talked a lot, and they just convinced everyone else that what they were doing was the right way. And people like Einstein and Schrodinger, who were on the other side, uh, more, you know, they wrote papers giving their points of view, but they didn't really, like, found a school or collaborate widely with each other or anything like that. So they, you know, didn't win the public relations battle. But also, there, that's just one reason. Another reason is There was a lot of practical things to do, right? We're talking about the 1930s and 40s. They were inventing nuclear physics and particle physics, okay, and quantum field theory. There was just an enormous number of very interesting questions that seemed both more relevant and more tractable than diving deeply into the foundations of quantum mechanics. And finally, you know, there was a a movement of the center of physics from Europe to the United States, And Americans are uh, just much more practical by nature. They're like, what can we do with this? And one of the problems with the foundations of quantum mechanics has always been, even if we admit it's a problem, how do we solve it? Like, what experiment do we do? What device do we build, right? Don't tell me that I just have to think about it more. That sort of rubs me the wrong way. So I think a whole bunch of these different influences came together to uh, to give people the impression that they should just shut up and calculate as the saying goes, and take the Copenhagen interpretation and not worry about all of its little issues.
1: And I can imagine that if you're a funding organization and somebody says, I'm going to build this super awesome computer that's going to do all this stuff and take advantage of quantum mechanics versus the guy who's like, I'm going to sit in my armchair and think really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's right. You know, funding is another thing that uh, if you can show a tangible result, that's what people want to see. And it's a little, you know, there have always been a small number of iconoclasts who have swum against the tide and tried very hard to understand quantum mechanics at a deep level. But they've always been a minority and they've always been, you know, uh, fighting their colleagues. Or sometimes what they did, the strategy was just to do respectable physics during the day and then think about things more um, philosophically at night and then not tell anyone about it.
1: So I want to remind our listeners that uh, Sean Carroll's new book, Something Deeply Hidden, is available at booksellers everywhere. So I have one more question for you. And um, it's kind of a a hard one, and maybe one that's in two parts. But um, let's say there we do we do have a a more fundamental understanding of quantum mechanics coming out in your and mine lifetime. And, you know, that, that sort of, you know, we can't predict how that's going to shift. But do you have a sense of like what what are the kinds of ways in which it might change our world or change our understanding? I mean, th- do you have hopes? You know, I can I can let me let me phrase that in terms of like if we understand consciousness, then my hope would be we can make ourselves live forever by uploading that consciousness into a place where yeah. you know we can then access it. So what is that kind of like pie in the sky view for you um, that might be possible in our lifetime about? what understanding quantum mechanics more deeply would give us?
0: Well, I I do want to emphasize that as far as I can tell, there are no practical benefits to understanding quantum mechanics. It will not make us live forever. It will not cure cancer. It will not even build a better iPhone, okay? Um, The benefits are all entirely on the basis of satisfying our curiosity about the world. So, but not only are the benefits that we would understand quantum mechanics better, my, my pie in the sky hope along the lines that you're saying would be that we would understand how to quantize gravity. You know, we have this long-standing puzzle since at least the 1950s. People have tried to reconcile Einstein's general relativity, which is his theory of gravity saying that space and time are curved and matter responds to that curvature in a way that we notice as gravity. And we've tried to reconcile that with quantum mechanics. Every other force of nature, electromagnetism, the nuclear forces, all the particles and stuff we know about, fit very comfortably into the quantum mechanical framework, and gravity does not. So to me, I say, look, what you're telling me is we don't understand quantum mechanics, and then you're acting surprised that we don't understand quantum gravity, So maybe those two things are not unrelated to each other, right? Like maybe if we really put our thinking caps on and try better to understand quantum mechanics, that will help us understand quantum gravity. And I do think that there are actual tangible signs that this is true. And so the last section of my book is talking about exactly this, modern efforts to have a new take on the emergence of space-time out of quantum mechanics which don't necessarily require that you be an expert or re- really care about the foundations of quantum mechanics, but certainly you're more likely to be thinking along these lines if you take those foundations seriously.
1: Well, I, I hope that we get there in my lifetime because I still think that it, it, just the whole idea of many worlds, the whole idea of the fact we don't understand something that we are you know, using all the time, uh, just in some ways remains like deeply disturbing. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, you say you want to get there in our lifetimes, but then you also say you want to live forever. So that that doesn't mean that we'll get there, you know, in any reasonable amount of time. These are incompatible wishes. Well, yeah, I
1: guess there's like an infinite numbers of me, right? (laughs) Well,
0: that's a whole other thing. Yes.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, Sean Carroll, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
0: My pleasure, Andre. Always glad to talk to you.
1: So that's it for another episode. I highly recommend Sean's latest book and his previous book, The Big Picture, but his latest book is Something Deeply Hidden, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space Time, as well as Ted Chiang's Exhalation set of short stories particularly the last one. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer-Aewild, Kyle Rehala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, well, the choices that you would make in many of the other worlds or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Brian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Andre Viscontis. See you next week.